0: Hello, my name is Leszek Jaroszewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello and welcome to Liberal Europe podcasts. My guest today is the European Stability Initiative founding chairman and one of the best experts on enlargement, rule of law and all things European. Gerard Knaus, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello. Good morning.
0: Um, So. Before we are talking in the context of um, offering Ukraine and Moldova the the membership uh, perspective in the EU, but before we get to it, I would like to ask you how the Eastern enlargement in 2004 transformed the EU. Oh, well,
1: the thing is that what those who argued in favor of enlargement, starting aggressively and with many persuasive arguments in the mid 90s, I remember Czech president Václav Havel. What they had in mind at that time was that Europe needed to use a historic opportunity to consolidate the democratic peace that was within reach, to, to integrate democracies and offer protection, offer integration, remove barriers, so that in case of a storm, in case of a geopolitical storm and tensions, the European House would be robust. I remember Vaclav Havel in '95 complaining that there was so little progress on enlargement against the background of the wars in former Yugoslavia. And when enlargement actually happened, of course there was a sense among many Europeans that it was nice to have, but there was not much fear of what we see today, continental war. But what we discover looking back, just imagine for a moment the Baltic states not being in NATO or the European Union. Imagine for a moment Bulgaria and Romania not being in NATO or the European Union, a short-sighted EU having closed the door, and we would imagine a Europe in which instability and fear would be immensely increased compared to what we have now. I mean, today we have one of the biggest wars, well, uh, one of the great wars uh, in the world taking place in Europe, but we've had 18 wars taking place after 1990 in Europe, and none of them on the territory of EU member states. We had a temporary, you know, Northern Ireland, the troubles, which ended in a peace in 1998. Otherwise, all the wars went from Yugoslavia, in the Caucasus, in Ukraine, in Transnistria, in Georgia. And today, we are in a situation, thanks to enlargement, that we have a united European Union on this fundamental issue, being able to present a united front and also a promise that those countries which were not yet included might also be included. And uh, that is the result, this vision of a, of a peaceful Europe of democracies of the enlargement in 2004. If we wouldn't have done it then, we couldn't even dream now of a Europe in which war would become unthinkable and in which Russia could be deterred by a concerted effort. Now we can.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree more and uh, w- what I wanted to ask you is how you think that The current uh, process of enlargement uh, differs from that that we remember from the 1990s, early 2000s. Well, the
1: the, the striking thing about European integration is it always made its advances under the shadow of war. You know, if we look back the great um, breakthrough with the European economic community in 1957, which I think is what we need today, the same thinking, when the Treaty of Rome said, let's remove barriers took place at a time when France was engaged in a bitter eight-year war in North Africa. And the big enlargement um, in uh, 1999, the Helsinki summit, when the EU decided to open talks with 12 countries, followed the Kosovo war. There was a sense of seriousness. You know, if we want to avoid war, we need to do something that takes an effort to enlarge. And in recent years, that sense of seriousness got lost. I mean, i give you just one example, North Macedonia. When there was a real threat, there was fighting in Skopje, in northern Macedonia, uh, in North Macedonia, in the north of the country, in 2001. The European Union rushed there, its special envoy, Javier Solana, rushed there to negotiate a peace. Uh, A big war was avoided. A peace agreement was signed, and the central promise of that peace agreement was European integration was promised to North Macedonia. And then, in the in the years that followed, there was a sense of seriousness. Okay, we support North Macedonia. We need to make uh, consolidate this democracy with the promise of integration. And in 2004, North Macedonia submitted an application. In 2005, it became a candidate. Great. That is 17 years ago. <laughs> And although North Macedonia became a candidate 17 years ago, in the last 17 years it was stuck. The sense of seriousness that Europe was a promise to make war unthinkable, also in the Western Balkans, was lost. So now we've had a a fake process for the last decade, where countries in the Western Balkans are somewhere on this uh, trajectory, some are candidates, some are negotiating, some are not even candidates yet, like Bosnia-Herzegovina. But nobody is actually moving closer to join the EU, because the EU has created a process where everybody is stuck. North Macedonia, 17 years candidate. Montenegro, 10 years negotiations. It's, in, it's a NATO member. For more than five years, Montenegro is in NATO. It's a small country. 640,000 people live in Montenegro. It has no problems with its neighbors. It has followed EU foreign policy 100%, as the EU recently acknowledged. It's participating in sanctions against Russia. So we have a small country in NATO, in the Council of Europe, no problems with neighbors, negotiating for 10 years. Nobody in Brussels will tell you that it could join in the next four years. And that's what I mean by fake process. So we had a sense of urgency 20 years ago, driven by a very real sense of tragic... Potential of, of you know wars might erupt tensions uh, conflict and this got lost and it was replaced by fake enlargement process that is not leading anywhere.
0: So you so you, you make this um, powerful argument that th- these are the the wars that perhaps the Balkan war helped the Yugoslavia wars helped the Central Eastern Europe to get into the EU. It's a qu- big question whether the war in Ukraine would help Western Balkans doesn't seems so, so far, it seems that actually they have been left behind, but can you tell more about the kind of inner perspective of the EU, of this reluctance uh, to offer a really progress on the accession? Because it seems now that enlargement is perceived as kind of necessary evil. So you have to pretend uh, that it exists, but it doesn't move forward. Why is that so? What what has changed? I mean, despite the fact that it hasn't been the major war uh, around EU recently, I mean, it was actually. so. We can say, pick up about Georgia, about Crimea. It would, it could perhaps start the the you know restart the accession process. It didn't. So, what are the kind of? Uh, I ask you about the Eastern enlargement and the perception of how it transformed Europe. Perhaps uh, old EU uh, Western countries sees that it wasn't uh, a success. I mean, in some aspects. So, do you think that could influence the, the calculation? Wh- why the reluctance well, now? Well,
1: let me first say I think that the Ukraine war, of course, has. Uh, restored a completely new sense of urgency. Uh, I mean, the fact that Ukraine was given candidate status, that Moldova was given candidate status, that even Georgia was given a perspective, uh, that would be unthinkable uh, half a year ago without the Russian aggression. And that was, was of course, stupid. We should have given Ukraine that perspective eight years ago, right? I mean, it was the war that created a sense of urgency to do something that would have been the right thing to do already eight years ago after the Euromaidan protests. So there is an opportunity, but why aren't we seizing that opportunity? Why are leaders not seizing that opportunity um, with more more purpose? Or indeed in the Balkans, not at all, still. has to do with some very serious questions they raise. And these questions need answers. I mean, one question that is being asked uh, by President Macron is, um, is the union ready Accept new members. And we're not talking about one or two at the moment. You know, there are six countries in the Western Balkans that want to join. Now there's Ukraine, there's Moldova, behind there's Georgia. And of course, we have still accession talks going nowhere with Turkey. That would be eight without Turkey or nine with Turkey. Can the Union accept nine new members? And President Macron has been saying for years, no. I mean, he said that in 2019 when he blocked North Macedonia and Albania. It was France that blocked them, not Bulgaria at first. And he blocked North Macedonia and, and Albania, saying that the union cannot keep enlarging. This was a principal point. He said it's not about North Macedonia, it's not about what happens there, it's about us, the EU. And he thinks it can't enlarge because the union needs to become stronger, it needs to deepen integration. And uh, changing the union is already very hard, and becomes harder with more members. And he's right on this. You know, If there are more members, there are more vetoes, there are more countries to persuade, it's a rational argument. The trouble is, he then doesn't say the next thing. He says, we promised them that they might join, but we say actually we don't want them to join. So we have a policy that just creates frustration and cynicism. What do we do then? <laughs> he doesn't say. So I think the problem I- is that at the moment, we don't give a good answer to that French question, which isn't just France. You know, uh, French, I mean, in Germany, people think like that. They think, most people I meet in Germany, if they're honest, think the union cannot absorb many more members. Uh, And the Netherlands and in Denmark, and even in Sweden, there are doubts. So what we then need, and I think this is the key, now also for Ukraine, if we don't want to have a cynical policy, we give Ukraine candidate status, like we gave it to Serbia, we might even open talks with Ukraine, who knows when like we opened with Serbia, or Montenegro, or Turkey, but we don't want the talks to end, we don't want them to join, that would be a disastrously cynical policy. What do we offer democracies in Europe that can be politically offered, that the French, the Dutch, the Germans support? And that's where I think we should go back to the Treaty of Rome, 1957, the core is remove barriers in europe the treaty of rome said let re- let's remove all barriers to 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 the, t- the term in the eu is the four freedoms yeah capital You,
0: you, capital, you said it at the at you said at the, at the summit in, in, in vienna that create european yes. economic community to yes,
1: two let's, or
0: four let's freedoms expand.
1: Mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. expand the european economic community let's offer this as a goal for the next 4 years if ukraine but also albania Bosnia, but also Serbia, meets the conditions, and this requires a lot of reform, that we can welcome them into the common economic space of Europe, including, you know, this is basically the whole Aki, it's environmental policy, it's the rule of law. You you can't uh, have countries adopt EU laws, which they don't enforce with independent judiciary and prosecutors and the rule of law. But if countries have the rule of law, if countries adopt EU legislation and have the institutions, Let's remove the barriers. Let's make the border between Poland and Ukraine in the future look like the border between Poland and Germany, or between Germany and France, or between Sweden and Norway. Norway is not in the EU, but it is in the common market, or between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is still in the common market, so you don't need a border. The goal could be, and that President Macron should support, because it would not make it more difficult to reform the EU in the next few years. To offer every country that wants to join the EU, yes, we open accession talks, but by the way, if you meet the criteria, one thing we can guarantee you now, you can join the single market and enjoy the four freedoms. Plus, of course, the economic support which the Union is giving to countries in return for opening, opening borders and having, uh, being part of the single market. That would be a vision that I think answers the French doubt. What is not possible and deeply, uh, I think it's dangerous, and it leads to cynicism and apathy and backlash and opens the door for nationalism and even for Putin's manipulations, is to have a fake process with no goal where we pretend we let people in, but then we don't even lift the visa requirement for Kosovo, and we don't actually lower barriers. Sufficiently to make a difference.
0: Well, that's uh, I like the uh, I like the scope, but also the pragmatism of, of, of your proposal. Uh, what I'm wondering is, uh, it seems it seems that in many countries in the in, in the EU and for the population, it is not, I mean, almost like natural that you should expand to those territories, even though if you combine all that Western Balkan, you know, small countries is perhaps even less than with uh, with the exception of Serbia is even less than Ukrainians that's crossed the borders already, uh, you know, escaping Ukraine. These are very small countries. But I'm wondering, is it, do you think that perhaps this enlargement fatigue, it it has to do also with, you know, the way that Poland and Hungary behaved with the kind of general feeling that Bulgaria and Romania were, uh, were, well, not ready for the membership? And or do you think also that simply perhaps some of those countries, definitely Ukraine or Moldova are not perceived as a part of the kind of common uh, European sphere? I think Western Balkans don't apply because people go there for tourism and so on. But uh, do you think that perhaps in, in the heads of many Europeans, and of many uh, EU citizens and leaders simply. EU has some kind of, the well, invisible borders and we are very close to those borders now. So, because I think it's more than just, you know, the process and, and the politics, that there is something deeper running that's, that simply EU doesn't want to u- use this most efficient tools of providing stability at the continent, that it's it's something more than that. Do you think that it's is true?
1: Well, I mean, so the first question is, uh, is there in the minds of, and of course, it's different in Portugal and in Finland, and different in France and in and in Italy. But but is there in the minds of Europeans or European leaders a sense that some countries just don't belong fully, right? Or some countries can't change enough to strengthen the EU, they would always weaken it. And I I think that's definitely the case. Many leaders in Europe, will, if you ask them today, could. You know, take one example where there are lots of prejudices, Albania. You know, people remember Albania as a failed state 20 years ago. And they think, well, how can Albania strengthen the EU? (laughs) But, But what these people forget, but it's natural, it's human. But what they forget is how Spain has transformed in the last 30 years. Remember, Portugal had a debate in the 70s whether it really belonged to Europe. At that time, a Portuguese dictatorship which only fell in 1974, was fighting to keep control of Portuguese territory in West and East Africa, which was defined part of Portugal. Portugal then did not look like a natural member of the European Union. You know, authoritarian, turned towards Africa, military-led, and then you had a revolution, Portugal changed, it was still desperately poor. You know, today nobody doubts that Portugal is not only... um, rightly, a member of the EU, but that it's strengthening the EU. The same would happen with Albania, the same would happen with the Balkan countries, if they transform in the same way, and why would not, would they not? I lived in Bulgaria in 94, 95 for two years. At that time, Bulgaria was lost, it looked like a former Soviet, you know, it was never part of the Soviet Union, but it was jokingly referred to as the 16th Republic of the Soviet, Soviet Union, because it was so close to, to Moscow under communism. Its economy was collapsing, and there were people in Europe, wise people like Helmut Schmidt, the former German Chancellor, or Valéry Giscard the former French president, who say Bulgaria is not part of European civilization, it's orthodox, right? The same argument was made about Romania. I look at Romania today, I would say the same is true for Bulgaria, but look at Romania today, 20 million people, a huge success story. I mean, economically, the transformation of Romania in the last 15 years was as miraculous as in Estonia or Poland. Politically, you have a fight against corruption, you have mayors in jail for corruption, you have a former prime minister in jail, the biggest corruption fighter in Europe is a Romanian former prosecutor. And uh, nobody doubts that it was a success. We need to remember that countries transform, like Portugal, like Greece, indeed like Germany. You know, who would have thought in the 40s that Germany would become a stable democracy that neighbors would trust? Europe is a story of transformations, and bringing countries together has made these transformations possible. So I think what we see with Ukraine now, what is perhaps the most significant, is that the image of Ukraine in Europe is changing. If you would have asked West Europeans a year ago, they would have said, many of them, and I know I lived in Ukraine, so when I came from Ukraine and I talked to people about Ukraine, you know, people had this sense, a totally failed state, as corrupt or more corrupt than Russia, you know, not an identity. You know, people didn't know much about Ukraine in, in, I would say, in Germany and West. That's changed completely, and it's also changing because millions of Ukrainians, are now actually in Western Europe. You know, in Poland, yes, in in the Czech Republic, but also in Germany, um, also in France, also in Italy. The stories are known. People are beginning to see that Kiev or Lviv are, are central European cities. If they also see, and that's why I think we need a process, that these countries can transform, that Ukraine today is not the Ukraine of eight years ago, that its internet, e-government, is better than in Germany. (laughs) That, you know, in many ways, these countries are, are full of capable people, that with the right incentives, the right structure, can be as successful as Portuguese or Irish or Germans or Austrians. If people see and change their idea, then this invisible border shifts. And I think that is really the issue, and that's why we need time and we need a process. What EU integration achieves is that Germans meet Poles at every level, all the time. You know, citizens, they travel, they work, businesses, administrations, politicians, at all levels, all the time, and that changes the image of countries. Poland's image in Germany is very different from 20 years ago. So, um, you, uh, you mentioned the point of the backlash against the rule of law in Poland and Hungary, or whether that's changing things. Yes, but I, again, it's very important. Not, I don't think that has anything to do with enlargement. You know, Poland's constitutional court was very well respected uh, until uh, 2015. The sense that Poland was, had the rule of law established, nobody would have doubted in 2014. These backlashes can happen in any democracy. It's not about enlargement. And the Union, needs to find ways to deal with such backlashes anyways. But look at what happens, the last point perhaps, what happens across the Atlantic in America. We suddenly discovered that there was a president elected, in the oldest democracy of all of these democracies, who uh, was not only inciting a violent mob to attack the legislature, not to certify a free election, but who was actually accepting that his own vice president might be killed in the process. What we're learning in the U.S. is that the U.S. was so close to a coup. This is an old democracy. It can happen anywhere. And that should make us vigilant, but it should not stop us trying to integrate democracies to strengthen all of them. And I I actually think that uh, the challenges that Poland and Hungary pose can be dealt with in the European Union in a way that helps that is actually good for poles and good for Europeans. Defend core principles and then move on and integrate other democracies. I don't think it's a mm. it's a reason not to do it.
0: I would, I would like to to come back to this issue at the very end, but before we get to it, I, I wanted to ask you, we we talk often about how candidate countries form in order to be ready to join the EU. But, how do you think EU has to transform itself to be ready to accept uh, well, Ukraine, Western Balkans or perhaps even Turkey? What kind of EU would be ready to accept them as a full member? Uh, do you, how do you see this process and what, how different this EU will be from the EU that we know today? Because I'm sure that it will have to be different in the way of decision making, in the way of strategic thinking, in the way of, of how it sees its role in the world.
1: Well, I am thinking uh, as a pragmatist and my favorite philosophers are all pragmatists. (laughs) uh, I'm thinking pragmatically, what's the next step? And the next step would be that the EU offers the Balkans, Ukraine, and Moldova the chance to prove that they can make reforms, but also offers them a massive incentive and, 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 and a vision, and that would be joining the single market. If that happens in the next few years, Let's say the Union now, this year, the Czech presidency says that we offer any democracy in Europe that meets the criteria for joining the EU and that meets the criteria, the technical criteria, and the rule of law and democracy criteria. We offer them the chance to join the single market. And then in the next four years, we will see, I, I'm, I'm convinced in this case, all of these countries making massive progress. That would create two pressures. One, of course, These countries would then, their image would change. But secondly, the EU would then ask itself for the first time realistically the question, oh wait, if these countries are all in the single market, if they meet the criteria, they could join. And only then will we have a serious debate about reform in the EU. Right now, President Macron wants a debate on reform, but most countries don't feel any pressure. But what if there are seven, eight new countries that might join? Then we need a reform debate. For example, are there areas in which you want to reduce the power of the veto? And then the question for Poland, for example, would be, we want Ukraine to be a member, but it only will become a member if there are reforms to decision-making. And this debate now is abstract. No Polish government will give up the veto now. But if in five years Ukraine is ante you know, might join, and suddenly the debate becomes real, perhaps the EU can reform. And secondly, I hope that in the next five years, the EU will solve one big problem, which is how do you protect the fundamental rule of law in every member state? This could happen, I'm convinced, in any member state, not just the new member states, so-called, which have been in the EU now since mm-hmm. 2004, so they're not that new. I think we have an instrument which already exists. We don't need any new instruments. Every time... The European Commission or member states feel that in a country the rule of law is at risk. Fundamentally, you know, courts are no longer independent. The European Commission can take that country to the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice, which it has done for the first time in its history on Poland, can find that the basic rule of law, independence of courts, Article 19, access to effective justice, is violated. So, it's not a political process. It's a process where an infringement process, where the Commission says, Here, the EU treaties are broken. The court finds, Yes, they are broken. To enforce this, we have an instrument. If such an Article 19 judgment, Article 19 is the treaty that says access to effective justice is necessary. If this is not there, if there is a judgment that this is not there, and this is not implemented, the Commission can go back to the court already today. And the court can impose any fine it wants to. It can impose a fine of 1% of GDP, which is the sort of thing we do to defend uh, our competition law against companies and monopolies. I mean, you know, companies need to pay 5% of turnover. The rule of law is more important. So I think in the case of Poland, for example, now, if the Commission had gone straight back to the European Court of Justice and said, if this judgment is not fully implemented to make courts independent again, Poland has to pay 1% of GDP. The goal is, of course, not that Poland pays, the goal is that it's implemented. And I think if we have such a system where the court defends the treaty and the independence of the judiciary according to criteria, with a real um, threat of massive fines, no country in Europe will dare not implement such judgments. And the whole union will have made a big step forward to defend the rule of law for every citizen. And in that case, we can enlarge. Mm. So what we need, we have. We just need to use it.
0: So it seems that the, the very last question, it seems that the Commission actually didn't really follow the, your advice because uh, it accepts at least, uh, well, conditionally, but very superficial the rule of law issue in Poland. And uh, it seems that Poland, at least, I don't know about Hungary, is on the track to receive the recovery funds. And to be honest, from the Polish perspective, it means that we are kind of second-grade rule of law country., you know, Poles are discriminated because we're going to have the, the worse uh, judicial system than the, the other EU. countries. And secondly, also it encourages populists in all EU to cherry pick what they like, what they don't like in the in the European project. So some might not like rule of law, some might not like the other freedoms, you know, freedom of, of competition, or of freedom of movement. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you see that uh, there is a way to enforce the, the rule of law mechanism, even no, even though now the Commission doesn't seem to be willing to do it? Or what, what, what the way of, for, you know, in the future you see for the for the EU funds and, and, and Poland and Hungary in this case?
1: I think I think this is an existential question for the EU, independently of whether the EU enlarges or not. The EU is based on a very simple principle. Sovereign states share sovereignty, but they don't actually give control to any center. It's not an empire. Nobody in Brussels can order a single policeman to go into any country to enforce the law. It always has to be national police. Right? So, it's not an empire, there is no National Guard, there is no uh, FBI in Europe, there is no ne- European law enforcement, doesn't really exist. Except we have a European court and then we have the possibility of fines. That's it. And any country can leave at any moment, there will never be a war of secession. You know, as we saw with the UK, if a country wants to leave, it can leave. This is what makes Europe great and unique. It's a voluntary association of countries and societies that want to stay together. But it only works if one, well, if a few key principles are really defended and access to justice, independent protection of your rights from Malta to Poland to Germany, which is assured through national courts, is central. Why do we make laws together if then there are no independent courts to enforce them, right? So this is existential. It's what the union is about. And I agree with you, I really fear that after many years in which this was actually recognized by the Commission, it fought, you know, from the beginning, you know, it was very slow because it had never happened before, but it took Poland to the European Court of Justice. We urged it to do so in many reports over the last few years. The Court of Justice ruled that there is a threat to the rule of law. Now, because I think the geopolitical situation, the Commission is at risk of giving up which I think is very dangerous because the rule of law is what, bring, what keeps Europe together. It's the only thing that keeps Europeans together, um, and it's an existential threat not to defend it. But this battle isn't lost. Um, I mean, it's very important to keep making the argument that this isn't about Poland versus Brussels or Poland versus countries. You know, this is about any citizen in the EU being able to rely on European institutions to defend these core principles on which the EU is based. And in the case of Hungary, which I think is a different case from Poland, the real issue is can the EU make sure that when it gives a country many percent of GDP a year, the biggest transfer of grants you know, in European history, well, what Hungary got in the last few years was more money proportionally than the UK got in the period of the Marshall Plan from the U.S. after the war, you know, it's an enormous amount of transfers. That this money is not used to build networks, you know, that undermine democracy. Friends, you know, uh, uh, you know, in Hungary, in Ukraine, you would say oligarchs, you know, rich people close to the government, which get a lot of the EU money and then buy media. You know, that the EU must be able to to prevent. So yes, these are two big challenges, but I think they can be met. Um, And in a way, the pressure, the new Cold War in which we are now, where Europe is, we know, I know ever since I went to Moscow in 2009 for a week and met all these Kremlin intellectuals, that they considered then already the European Union as a threat to Russia because it is not an empire. It's a voluntary association based on principle that makes countries stronger. Russia, Putin's Russia, wants to destroy it and they tried, supporting the Brexit, supporting anti-EU forces. In this new Cold War, Europe needs to strengthen its foundations, and that involves two things. Strengthen the rule of law inside the EU, and making a credible promise to democracies that want to join, that they can actually come closer. And if Europe meets these two challenges, not only will Putin fail, but the vision of 1990 which is actually much older, the vision of a continent of peace with democracies united, where war is as unthinkable as it is today between the Netherlands and Germany, or Germany and Poland, or Poland and Lithuania, or Hungary and Romania. Unthinkable. Conflict is unthinkable. We are getting closer to having this vision on a continental basis. That's possible, and that's worth fighting for.
0: I think that your argument that sheer existence of the EU uh, is a threat to all imp- empires and autocrats in the world is very true. That's why they fear it. Uh, well, Gerhard Naus, uh, I really share and, and adore your idealistic pragmatism or pragmatism, pragmatic idealism. And I, I hope that could be inspiration for us all. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today on the Liberal Europe podcast. And uh, I hope to meet again soon. Thank you so much. Yes, I thank you. All the best. Thank you. Uh, This was Liberal Europe Podcast. Uh, Please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre next week. My name is Leszek Szeski and we'll meet again in two weeks. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share and give us a five-star review. You'll hear from me soon. Until then, please listen to Liberal Europe Podcast next week with Ricardo Silvestre.